Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. Uh, I was recently forwarded a list of questions, uh, and it was in preparation for a conference I was going to be facilitating discussions with. And they were example questions that could guide me possibly in the facilitating of those conversations. And I sent these questions off uh, to a trusted group of people and uh, anonymously, so they didn't know each other, just to see how they would answer the questions. And it was across the ecosystem. And one of the people I definitely was intrigued with who would answer these questions always thinks outside the box. Uh, he's multidisciplinary in his thinking. He's well-read. He crosses thought disciplines, including uh, including in our uh, in the risk resilience and security industry, but also across uh, disciplines in uh, in the liberal arts, in sciences, and so forth. Uh, so I couldn't wait until he answered the questions. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Mark Oakes, the CEO and CEO and founder of Concentric Security, and we're going to have a, a great conversation around those questions. How does that sound, Mark? Sounds wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> you betcha. Uh, just for a second, though, let me just give the community what those questions were, if that's okay with you. Sounds perfect. So here are the questions. Very simply, very pithy. Why is it important for security to be the responsibility of multiple people in an organization, including those outside of the security discipline? What teams do you think are the most important to be involved and why? Where do you see security playing into business continuity and reputation? How can security professionals best gain budget and buy-in for corporate security in their organizations? How do you prove the value of something that seems to many as a cost center? And finally, what role does technology play in supporting all of these questions, cross-team collaboration, proving the value and gaining budget. Now, uh, I want you all to think about the words that were used because now Mark and I are gonna start a, a great conversation around these questions and maybe a way forward, a way of thinking forward that could help us navigate risk and opportunity. So, so Mark, when I first gave you these questions, what was your reaction? I'm not sure how to answer the questions. And <laughs> so it was interesting because for the benefit of the, the listeners here, um, we opted, Ron and I opted to have a conversation instead of doing what historically I've done, which is I, like many people, want to provide value. I know you guys want to provide value. So you get questions and you sit down and you reflect on those questions, you provide an answer, and there's a little bit of hope as strategy that your answers are gonna provide some modicum of value to the person who asked them. And so Ron and I sat down and what, we wanted to sort of delve into the questions or I did because I wanted to provide value and it turned into a two hour conversation. So Ron and I are gonna to try to, together and for all of your benefits, we're gonna to try to break down um, two hours and try to put it into about 20 minutes or so. So when I got the questions and historically, as I said, I, I will typically try to answer those, but 
over the course of the last number of years, I've become much more sensitive to the fact that I want to provide value, but answering the question may not provide that value. And the reason I say that is this. So from a cognitive science standpoint, over the last decade or so, what we've learned from a research standpoint is that all of us think or see the world through a set of patterns. And so instead of being thinking beings, for lack of a better word, we're pattern recognition machines. So when we answer a question, what we do is we sort of go into our long-term memory and we pull up the patterns that we know because of our own unique experiences. And we then answer those questions based on those patterns. But the reality of it is, is that my experience, the things that I've learned may or may not apply to the context that Ron was trying to, or was asking the questions from, or that Ron's um, audience was asking the questions from. So I looked at these questions and what I try to do now is I try to look at these, look at questions and look at situations from a much more nuanced standpoint. And for the benefit of your audience, what I, I look at is I try to gather and develop and think about what Charlie Munger called mental models. So if for those of you that are interested, um, Charlie Munger, who's the partner for Warren Buffett, gave a speech to the USC Business School back in 1994. And in that speech, he began to articulate and talked about what he called a latticework of mental models, and then sort of depicted across social sciences and physics and math mathematics and economics. He sort of gave those students this um, toolbox of models that he encouraged them to think about and to look at the world through. And that's how he and Warren Buffett make their decisions. And to add to that, there was a British, um, I think a British statistician by the name of George Box, um, who said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And along similar lines, there was a mathematician by the name of, um, I think it's Alfred Korzybski, who created a mental model or it became a mental model that essentially says the map's not the territory. What that essentially means is, we have these models that we look at the world through, and that includes the security industry. And those models aren't perfect, but they're definitely useful at times. And so when Ron asked me the questions, I sort of segregated his six questions into three parts. And what I'll say is that the models that I use may or may not be right, but they're useful, as George Box would say. So the first thing I looked at was his two questions relative to cost and value. So I, one of them was how was security, um, how does security professionals best gain budget and buy-in? And the next was how do you prove its value based on being a cost center? Now, Ron and I joked about it. You know, I've been in the security industry now for 42 years. And as a you know, green wet behind the ears kid at 18 when I started, one of the first arguments that I heard from security professionals were, we're a cost center. And so the model that I thought about was something that psychologists use called the theory of narrative identity. Now, essentially what that means is, is that as an individual or as a group of individuals, our identity is formed by the stories we tell ourselves. So our past experiences, our current perceptions, our view of what the future is going to look like, all of that's woven together 
And each of us individually has a unique story that we tell ourselves about how good we are, how bad we are, you know, what our role is in an organization, how good we are as a, a son, daughter, husband, wife, whatever the case may be. We have a story. And that story essentially drives our identity. And our identity then drives our actions. And so Ron and I were sort of kibitzing on the fact that this narrative, this identity within the security industry has been prevalent for decades now, which is we're a call center. But if you step back out for a minute and look at a cross-section of organizations, whether they're in the for-profit world or the not-for-profit, whether they're federal governments, whatever, there are just as many organizations out there that don't view security as a cost center as there are that do. In other words, I'm speaking about individuals that have a mission statement regarding what they do from a security standpoint. So the thing that I mentioned to Ron was, as security professionals, it's helpful for us to step back from this narrative that we're just a cost center and begin to look at things from a different perspective, especially if you're in a leadership position, a CSO position, and begin to think about how you're integral to the organization, not as a cost center, but as a profit center or as a risk mitigation model or whatever the case is. And by shifting that narrative identity, that story that we tell ourselves, it's going to run, it's going to lead to a completely different set of actions that will benefit the security profession. So that's the first model that I thought about. Do you want to add anything to that, Ron? Well, thank you very much because uh, story, the power of story, uh, we meet up with that power in every professional discipline inside the company, the power of story. What is the story that we've defined our role throughout time? And can we begin to, first of all, understand other people's stories on our executive management team, and then understand the root of those stories. And more importantly, the last question you asked is the real story is how we are integral uh, to the team model, which we call the business. So I, I love where you're going. Keep going, Mark. Yeah, and on a bumper sticker, I think the whether it's the security industry or whatever we do, whatever role or position we are in life, I think on a bumper sticker, it's use that mental model to question the stories that you tell yourself. And by questioning that, and at least moving away from black or white thinking, you open up the aperture some so that you can then begin to look at things from, the, from a different perspective. And by doing that, maybe shifting your identity just a hair, you're gonna take different actions and you're gonna get different results. Exactly. So that's, the, that's it on a bumper sticker relative to, I'm a cost center and how do I play in the, in the market or in the business? The second set of questions were the first three that Ron um, highlighted, which is why is, you know, why is it important for security to be the responsible responsibility of multiple people and who should be involved, et cetera. The mental models that I began to apply to those three questions, as opposed to answering them directly, are this concept of what is called systems thinking. So guys like Fritz John Capra and others essentially do a lot of work in the area of systems thinking, systems modeling, and it's an overarching concept that everything in our existence, nature, man-made, whatever the case is, is a system. We live in a world which is a lattice work of systems, whether it's a toaster or a car or a tree or a piece of grass, everything is a system and it follows, it has inputs and it follows a set of sequential steps. And when those steps are done, you get a result. 
It's that simple. Now, in reality, it's not simple. Going back to what George Box said, you know, all models are wrong, but a lot of them are useful. The reality is, is that in security, we do the same thing. And in organizations, they are looking at the same thing. So in security, we have these on day one of teaching somebody security, we talk about the security triangles, which the components of a system are people, procedures, and equipment. And the functions of that system are detection, delay, and response. That's a system, okay? And what happens, going back to the first discussion we had or the first mental model regarding theory of narrative identity, the security function within the organization is one component of a very complex system with independencies and dependencies, but your organization is exists so that it will create a result, whatever that result is. Some organizations don't require security and they are definitely a cost center. Some do. Uh, if you're in the military, the outcome of that system is pretty well defined. And so what we want to do is we want to begin thinking beyond the boundaries of our silo and begin thinking about what we do from a much more holistic standpoint. And this is not only in the functional role, but in the strategic role, we want to think systemically about what the function functions and result are of the organization, the complex systems are that we're in. Okay. So one of the things that's helpful, and I just have trained myself to do this, I, wherever I look, I see a system. And while I may not know all the inner workings of that system, I do understand that that system is there to deliver a result. So I'll give you an example. Let's say it's a car. <clears throat> There's all makes and models, all different colors. Some are lower cost, some are higher cost. Some are you know, designed to sell for emotional reasons. But the purpose of a car is simple. You get in and it takes you from point A to point B. That's the result of a car. Okay, but for that car to work, and let's just take autonomous vehicles off the table for a minute, for that vehicle to work, another system, which is you and me, we have to get into that car and we become an integral part of that system. You can't differentiate the two. We get in, we close the door, we turn the ignition, we then put our foot on the gas pedal, we have the steering wheel, we are now an integral part of that system that gets us from part point A to B. The same thing applies to accounting, finance, security, operations, manufacturing. You can't take one component of that system out and expect the system to function. And so from a system standpoint, it's very, for us to say, what is, you know, when we ask the question, should security be the role of multiple people? The answer to that is an unequivocal yes. But in order for us to understand what those roles are and how those people interplay with each other, we have to look at the organization from a systems perspective, not from a functional perspective. So the systems thought process is extremely helpful because what it does is it blurs our vision regarding our function and our role. And it allows us to begin looking at how does what I do affect something else in this organization and vice versa. So Ron, do you want to add anything to that mental model? As you know, I do a lot of conversations with a, uh, a lot of multidisciplinary people, including um, probably some leading thinkers in organizational development, uh, which is usually the purview. Organizational strength is the purview of HR. And I was talking to one of the leading thinkers in this space and uh, 
And they were speaking about systems thinking without using that term. They were saying, imagine for a second, if we thought of our business as a human body. And I think where you're going with this is that um, the systems thinking allows us to think of the role, minor or major, in uh, a fully optimized, in a sense, human machine. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I would add to that, that you can now bring in a physics, series of physics mental models into this discussion and look at it from this perspective. So in physics, there's a law, the second law of thermodynamics, essentially in layman's terms, says that everything moves towards entropy or decay. So you have an organization, your company, let's say it's a company, and this company's role is to make whatever. That's its role. The, the result of a company is not to make a profit. That's a result, or that's a byproduct of what it's intended to do, which is to create value in the marketplace for a set of customers that perceive that what they make is a value and they exchange money for it. Money's an echo, not a focus. Now, that organization is in an ecosystem of countless other systems. That includes competitors, that includes regulatory guidelines, that includes COVID, that includes whatever. So that organization that we've created now has externalities that by definition, the second law of thermodynamics, are essentially could impact its ability to achieve its result. In the security world, we call those externalities risk. And so part of what we do as an organization from a security perspective is we first and foremost have to understand, okay, all of these systems that we call a company or an agency or a nonprofit, all of these systems come together to create this result. Now, what systems outside of here could have an impact on our ability to deliver that result? Now we get into the role of a security department, which is to mitigate risk. And we begin looking at what are those, what are those things? We call them threats, we call them terrorists, we call it crime, we call it whatever. We give it a name, but if you think about it, a terrorist is deploying a system to achieve a result, which is at odds with what we want to achieve. And so when you think from a systems perspective, we now are looking at, okay, what are our risks? We know that there are five things we can do with them. We can accept them, we can spread them, we can remove them, we can mitigate them. You know, we can transfer, we can buy insurance. An organization doesn't think twice about spending money on insurance, which is the transference of risk. So part of what a security department does, whether that's a practitioner or a CSO or whatever, is they're looking at the organization from a systemic standpoint and then thinking about what are the systems outside of my business that could be impacting our ability to deliver the result that we were intended, that we designed to produce. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm just taking I'm just taking security frameworks, patterns, mental models, and then essentially lying, laying those side by side with physics chemistry, cognitive science, neuroscience, economics, whatever the case is. That's, that's all I'm doing is looking at these and then saying, okay. And it gets back to the concept of if all you have is a hammer, then everything's a nail. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to what we started the conversation with, which was Carl, uh, Charlie Munger's speech in 1994, where he talks about having a lattice work of mental models, the more, and 
the more of these we have, the better equipped we are to think holistically about what we're looking at from a systemic standpoint and then make decisions and take actions to see whether those actions will indeed improve things in our environment, which gets us to the last question that you asked. And the last question you asked was, what role does technology play? And it's impossible to answer that question until we answer the prior questions because, and I'll use another set of mental models here, which, it, um, which is cognitive science. Cognitive science over the last number of years has sort of shifted how it views what our brains do. And so in simple terms, it gets back to this concept that our brains are pattern recognition machines and we are interacting and we become one with our environment. So we see something in our environment that we either like or we don't like, and then we want to change what we don't like. We call those things goals. We call those things, you know, um, we want to, we need to take the garbage out. We call these things, I need to get gas in my car when the light comes on. So we are looking at our environment. We see something that doesn't fit a pattern that we want to see, and then we want to make a change. That's what we individually do as humans day in and day out. Now, in cognitive science, they have some fancy terms that they apply to this called disturbances and affordances. So a disturbance is we see something in our environment we don't like, and we want to change it. But in order to change it in the context that we're in at that very moment, we need what a cognitive scientist will call an affordance. In other words, we need a tool. So here's an example. You walk out on your deck, you're having a cup of coffee, and um, you look down on the deck and you see a nail that's sticking up. So you're now in an environment, it's very specific, in a specific context. You're standing on your deck and you see a nail that's sticking up out of the deck. That pattern says, I need to get the nail and I need to hammer it back in. That you don't have an affordance, a tool, we call it a hammer, to go hammer it in at that point. And you go, well, I need to remember that. But the truth of the matter is you may look at that nail sticking up for the next six months and not hammer it back in because the tool is not available at the very point where you see the pattern and you wanna make the correction. This is why we create a things to do list, for example. In other words, we see something or think of something that needs to be done, we write it down and we then transfer our thinking to our environment. We call it a things to do list or journaling or writing or whatever the case is. And then if, you, if anybody has ever written a things to do list, you then go back to that artifact that you left in your environment and you look at it and you go, oh yeah, that reminds me I need to do this. So you're now interacting with your environment and you're adding to that. This is why when the reporter went to Richard Feynman and said, looked at all the journals on his um, desk and said, oh, Mr. Feynman, Richard Feynman was a physicist and said, oh, I see all your journals. That's a great reflection of all your thinking that you captured. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. That is my thinking. He goes, no, that's just your journals. And what Richard Feynman was saying was, I can't think without writing it down on paper. So let's get back to this question of technology. In the security industry, we have this propensity to look at the latest shiny thing and then think that that's what we need. But the reality of it is, is that we're not thinking systemically about what an individual needs in what context to solve what problem, what disturbance, and what affordance does he need? And so we buy things that we don't need or we don't buy things that we should have. 
That's the role of technology, which gets this full circle back to the systems within the security framework. We need people, we need procedures, and we need equipment. But those three things have to come together in a specific context, environment, so that we can solve our problem and move that problem towards completion. So if you use that cognitive science model in the security space, you begin thinking about what equipment do we need? What processes or steps should we take as we use that affordance, that piece of equipment? And what objective or what end result are we gonna get as a part of the overall whole? So I don't know what you want. Do you wanna add anything to that, Ron? No, I, as, as, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking in terms of the role the role of the security leader in uh, helping one educate their own people around systems thinking, and uh, and then being able to do the spade work, the excavation of how people perform roles in a process using tools to achieve the outcomes that matter to this entity they call the business. And if you can be a student of those patterns that are going on right now inside your company and the external things that may impact them, then you can be truly a business advisor, not just a risk advisor. Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you an example that's now, I won't mention the company, but it's sufficiently dated. It's about 15 or 20 years dated. So I was called in to the headquarters of a major airline. And they wanted a vehicle barrier and a, an entry control point next to their headquarters. And so I flew into the town that I was coming into. I met with the physical security people and they said, we need a vehicle barrier. And I began asking the questions that most technologists would ask, which is, you know, what K level or security rating do you want? And I'll ask a number of other questions. And they said, well, just we want the most expensive thing, you know, the most, the highest level security you can provide. So I began asking questions that sort of tie back into this concept that I mentioned, this mental model of cognitive science that I mentioned a minute ago. And ultimately what I told them was that it, when you buy that vehicle barrier, you're trying to stop a vehicle that has an explosive charge in it. The standoff distance between the access control point and the side of the building was not sufficient. If it stopped the threat at that point, it would still take out one side of the building. And I just happen to know because it's headquarters that most likely in the upper right-hand corner of that building closest to the vehicle barrier was the CEO's office. So I'm now thinking systemically about the risk that they're trying to mitigate. I'm thinking about people, procedures, and equipment, detection, delay, and response. I'm thinking systemically about this. And my recommendation was, is that instead of just taking a directive to put something in, that they have a conversation with the person. And I didn't call it by title because I didn't want to be direct, but you may want to talk with the people, the assets that you have in that corner of the building and encourage them. It'll be a lot less expensive to build new suites on the opposite corner away from the threat and you will be able to save their lives. And they looked at each other and said, thank you very much. They had the conversation and we didn't sell a thing. And I, and that was a win, not because we didn't, I mean, that was a win because we solved the problem thinking systemically and thinking about the use and the validity of technology and thinking 
in an asymmetric way about what we're trying to solve. And they were able to come up with a solution that cost almost no money and still, still achieve the same end. That's what we as technologists, as integrators and constructors and manufacturers and as CSOs, this is how we should be thinking collectively instead of getting into a silo and only thinking within the confines of that box. Well, if we, so, can, if we can provide systems thinking too, again, we meaning the CSO for a second, so I'm, I'm defining a role here. If the, the, the chief risk officer, if the chief security officer, uh, if the enterprise risk leader is um, going to a kind of a next generation of thinking, they're going to provide pattern-based um, pattern thinking, systems-based thinking to not only the bad actors who also have a system by which they achieve their goals. Exactly. But also to, of course, the operational behaviors and systems within their own company. And if they can merge those two. So what are... are what are you seeing these days, Mark? What's, are you seeing people begin to deploy consciously or unconsciously uh, these kind of uh, disciplines in, in the future role of the CSO? It's case dependent. I, you see it in pockets, but it, it usually starts with a leader who steps back and begins to think a little bit more systemically about their role and then creates a dialogue with other people within the organization and encourages them to think systemically as well. I'm, I'm reminded of a story, it, it's a leadership function. And I'm reminded of a story that Stephen Covey told once about, uh, and you may have heard it, Ron, about the jungle clearing crew. And so there's this crew, they're in the jungle and their job is to clear the jungle and build a road. And so Covey sort of walks through the roles. So you've got all of the practitioners that are down on the ground with their machetes and their bulldozers and they're cutting down trees and they're sort of clearing the road. And then you've got the managers who are there teaching safety and, you know, they're doing ax sharpening classes and, you know, providing support to, you know, provide as many tools as possible to the practitioners so they can clear the jungle. All the while the leader is off at the edge and he's shimmying up to the top of the highest tree in the jungle. And he puts his hands up to his mouth and he yells down, wrong jungle. That's ultimately <laughs> what we need to be thinking about because, and to think that leadership is a role is short-sighted. Leadership is a mindset. It gets back to what we're talking about here of patterns and mental models. When you have people within an organization that think systemically, think about patterns, once you see that the results of that thinking yields fruit, it has a tendency to catch on. To think that it's happening at a macro level or industry-wide, I think is not fair. But in pockets, I think that you're beginning to see a number of leaders that are beginning to think systemically about how do they fit into the overall systems? What is their part and how can they facilitate the intent and objectives of that system, call it a company or whatever. And when you see that happen, you pretty much open, as I said earlier, the aperture and a lot of really, really positive things can happen. Leadership is not, yep. leadership is not titular. 
leadership is a mindset. I can't think of a better way uh, to conclude this great conversation. Any last minute advice, Mark? No, I would just encourage everybody. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share a couple of thoughts with folks and hopefully provide um, at least a high level perspective. My encouragement would be as you look at opportunities, as you look at potential challenges in your environments, whether it's a company or home or whatever the case is, pause for a minute, step back and ask yourself, what am I really seeing here? And ask yourself, is there a model that I can apply here that will help me better interpret? The model is going to be wrong, but different models will be useful. And if you begin thinking a little bit more from a macro perspective, you will find that life just has a tendency to get a whole lot easier. So that would be my, my parting counsel. Easier and perhaps, Mark, more interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a great conversation, Ron. As always, I relish the time that I spend with you and thank you for the opportunity to share a few things with your listeners and um, look forward to chatting again soon. And this has been a great conversation with Mark Oaks.